This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. up fantasizing about what you see happening in the Super Bowl and you probably played that game uh, a million times. Tell me what your biggest fantasy has always been as you've been growing up about the Super Bowl. Well I think the greatest thing for a quarterback you're in the fourth quarter there's about 32 seconds to go on the clock. 39 seconds remaining. You're inside their 25 yard line. At the 10 yard line. And uh, you drop back. Back to throw Montana. You find Eddie Brown in the back of the end zone. Up the game's over and you win. And the 49ers have won the Super Bowl. Uh, that would be the ultimate of any Super Bowl. If you pick your nose, and we all do, if you pick your nose and you get a good booger on the end of your finger, and you try to flick that booger off by throwing your thumb outward, that booger's not going anywhere. But if you will take your thumb and turn it in, and at the same time your wrist snaps and your fingers release, crud, you'll have them ducking all the way across the room. You throw a spiral and you flick a booger with the same motion. This is Sam Weich, offensive mastermind and quarterback guru. Third down and two. Third down and As two. As a coach, he taught some of the best quarterbacks the finer points of throwing a football. As a player with the Cincinnati Bengals, Weich knew how to throw a spiral. He just didn't do it very often. Veteran Sam Weich, a proven backup quarterback, but certainly no superstar. <laughs> Sam Weich was awful, and I, and I mean this. I was the highest paid player per minute of playing time in the history of the league, mainly because I never played. 
White stayed in Cincinnati for three years, learning from head coach Paul Brown and quarterback coach Bill Walsh. Bill and I were really good friends. We weren't that far apart in age. I can remember he said one day, you know, uh, if you keep at this, I think you'd make a good coach. At quarterback, number 14, Sam Weish, functioned like another coach. Which was his way of saying, you're not a very good player, <laughs> but you might be a good coach. In 1979, Walsh became head coach in San Francisco. This man setting down has got a good chance inside there. But one of his first calls was to Weich, who was hoping to become a high school coach. On the same day that Bill Walsh called me to say, I'm going to take the job of the 49ers, would you be interested in coming out and coaching the passing game? On that same day, I got the rejection letters from two North Carolina schools saying, Sam, we are uh, rejecting you on your qualifications. You've never coached. We are looking for an experienced coach. But White was qualified to mentor the 49ers rookie quarterback. Let me tell you, when you're, when you're coaching Joe Montana, it's real easy. You fold your arms, you take about three good giant steps backward and stay out of his way. That way you get to be a good coach. In 1981, Joe Montana led the 49ers to a Super Bowl win over White's former team. Two years later, White's former team hired him to be their new head coach. You're on your own. <laughs> well, thanks for that short introduction, Paul. I appreciate that. <laughs> Years ago, when I was a rookie in 1968, I used to take real good notes. And Paul Brown used to take one playbook each year. And he would always take the playbook from the player that he thought took the best notes. Well, he selected my playbook. And he had remembered that. That's how he said that he came back to me, that he was impressed by my note-taking and thought I'd be a good coach. Sam White's life had come full circle. He was back where his career had started working for the man who used to be his coach. And on the day White was hired, Paul Brown returned White's old playbook. There he is. In the coming years, White would transform that playbook into an offense which the NFL had never seen. In 1984, Sam Weich's first season as head coach in Cincinnati, Boomer Esiason was drafted by the Bengals a second round. He arrived with a big arm and a big ego. I was very upset that I was not a first round draft pick and, and when I think back to that time, I wonder what happened. I think partly my personality was to blame. I was not afraid to say what was on my mind. What kind of call is that? I always felt like when I played football that I wanted to be who I was as a person, that I did not want to be some cookie-cutter quarterback. Should have passed it. Well, except we've been blowing them out running. I always thought of Sam and me as a, like a bunking bronco with a guy that's trying to tame him. Oh, so he was a bunking bronco, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Threw the ball so hard that sometimes the ball would fly on him, so he'd overthrow receivers. They used to joke around he was the only person that could overthrow Castro. I never said that uh, more than once or twice. Oh, You know, it's like we gave up on that I think you could probably describe him any animal that's wild, because he, he needed to be tamed a little bit. Hey, 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 hey! There was no taming nose tackle Tim Crumry, a 10th round draft pick who, like Esiason, was surprised he was selected so late. I'm still hot. I'm still pissed off. You get me rolling on that. I was too light, too short, too slow. And one thing, you can't measure computers, your heart. 
I got a heart of gold. I'm gonna make the team, I'm gonna play a long time. Crumry was the prototypical nose tackle. Farm boy from Wisconsin. Former wrestling champ. A badass with a bad ear. This is a trophy of all wrestlers. It's a cauliflower ear. If you see somebody with a cauliflower ear, he's a wrestler now. Crumry foremost was a football player. And number 69 loved proving that he belonged in the NFL. Here's a guy that basically had the biggest chip on his shoulder that I had ever seen. I mean, he was so ticked off at his draft uh, location. Every practice was like third and one on Sunday afternoon. And it would always be a fight. It'd always be pushing and shoving. I mean, he went 100 miles an hour. At the times, it got to be uncomfortable. We'd all be wondering, is there something wrong with this guy? <laughs> I was the pain in the ass guy. I was the guy going 100 miles an hour, raising hell, making all the guys mad at me. I was scared somebody was gonna cut me. I was scared people were gonna say, hey, he's not as tough as he's supposed to be. Tim was the spirit of the defense. He was the one that everyone looked at and said, hey, if he can go that hard, that many snaps, then we can do it. And, and I think it was a big part of everything coming together. Before everything came together for Weich, the Bengals nearly fell apart. In 1987, Weich was facing his mentor, Bill Walsh. The Bengals had the lead, the ball, and they presumed a 2-0 start to the season. But on fourth down, with six seconds remaining, instead of punting or taking a safety, Weich decided to run the ball. Six seconds seemed like we could make a nice little sweep, jog around back and forth, and just fall down, and the game would be over. And the play will be ruled dead right there. So there's two seconds left. The 49ers will have a chance to throw one. Right to the near side. Here's Montana throwing for the end zone. Right, right. He's got it! Touchdown, 49ers! That's one of the hardest losses I've ever been a part of, and it was my fault, the whole thing. We come into the locker room, and I mean, there's gonna be a mutiny. The team is gonna to wanna to kill Sam. Weich had lost his team, literally. Following that game, NFL players went on strike, which was an awkward time for newly appointed player rep, Boomer Esiason. I was crazy passionate about carrying out the wishes of the players that I played for. I never thought in, in my wildest dreams that it was the right thing to do simply because of the amount of money that was going to be lost. And no one had more money to lose than Esiason. Two weeks before the strike, he had signed a five-year, $6 million contract. So I was against it initially. And then when we got into it, I had no other way but to go full speed ahead, which is what I did. I put my reputation on the line, and it was a really tough situation. I figured that a picture is worth a thousand words, so I decided to sit in front of this bus. I want the, uh, the guys, though, to be independent thinkers and, and uh, uh, individuals enough to evaluate whether they want to be on a picket line, laying in front of buses, acting silly like they are right now, or whether they want to be professional adult men that want to live in this community. I've never regretted that moment because I really thought that that got my teammates support behind me because they knew I had the most to lose. Boomer, have you guys got workouts seriously planned for V-Day or during the day? No. Have you got workouts planned for during the week? No. You're not going to work out? No. We're just going to go over and hang out at the Clarion Hotel. Okay. Okay. Well, that'd be a we mistake. don't have a football. We don't have any pads. We don't have any helmets. How are we supposed to work out? I'll bring you some footballs from home so you guys can work out. 
So I did run practice, and the first practice that I ran, I had a hat, I think, that said coach on it. I had a whistle, and I had a clipboard, and I asked everybody to come out to a LaSalle High School in northern Cincinnati. I even invited the press to come, and I brought everybody around, and I said, okay, guys, welcome to practice. The first thing we're going to practice today is how to take the safety at the end of the game so we don't lose a game. And I put Chris Collinsworth in as the punter. We snapped the ball. Chris ran out the clock. We go home, we win the game instead of losing the game, and then I called practice, that was it. It was over with. And essentially, so was the season. The 87 Bengals never recovered from the strike, finishing four and 11. There was plenty of blame to go around, but most of it fell on the coach and quarterback. I think it was an exasperating, frustrating, a completely out of control season for the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, the fan didn't want to hear about a million-dollar quarterback sitting in front of a bus, going on strike and, and things of that nature. And I could completely understand where the fan was coming from, but I'm still a human being. When somebody says something negative to you, and it seems to be a reoccurring theme, you're like, maybe I need to get out of here. Siason thought about leaving. Weish wondered if he'd be fired. But Paul Brown kept his quarterback and his coach. And one year later, his loyalty would be rewarded. Lake Coslett, sure. Sam Weich was an amateur magician who occasionally performed for his players. What he did in 1988 with the Cincinnati Bengals was one of the greatest tricks in football history. MR. Sam really worked literally his magic to try to galvanize his team again and I give him a lot of credit because he did a lot of things that no coach would have ever thought about doing, including rooming black player with white player, offense with defense, and training camp that really helped the situation. The hope was that the players in December, when it got really tough, would be able to look at each other and say, I know that guy's wife's name. I know how many kids he has. I know what's important in his life. We've talked about things that mean more to us other than just football. It was different. Uh, it made the chemistry come around, wakes everybody up. We're not doing it the right way, and we're going to change. No matter what it is, change is good. Weich wanted a fresh start, but he was more concerned with how his team would finish. In 1987, the Bengals had a chance to win seven games late in the fourth quarter and lost them all. Not being able to finish off the game uh, led to the word finish becoming the keynote for the 1988 season. Be physical, keep your poise, and finish everything we start. Finish everything, guys. From the first game, it was clear that 1988 would be a season of fantastic finishes. Right now, D, right now, D. Excited. Coming off the 87 season, it didn't take too much to get us excited. We have a goal line stand, and hell, everybody's jumping up and down like we won the Super Bowl. <laughs> we just made a good play. That's what we were paid to do. Kick their butts right now. Let's go. Stay after them. Finish everything. Whoever's going to have to throw into the end zone. Touchdown right against the end line. Touchdown to Tim McGee. Good job. They won't yeah. quit on it. I guarantee you they're not going to quit. Nice job, Nice going. Down! 
I don't want to hear any of you guys ever talk about our fourth quarter play again. Unless you've got some that I don't think you've got. We have to fight ourselves uh, from the doldrums uh, of last year to gain respect this year. Uh, you know, I was watching ESPN today, and you know, Axtelm is making fun of the Bengals and you know, and our coach, and you know, that kind of stuff just makes you sick to your stomach. One year earlier, Boomer Esiason was the one making fun of Sam Weich. Now, quarterback and coach were having fun. Very nice, very nice. Joe Montana was one of the most productive quarterbacks in the history of the league. Boomer as a field general, as a commander on the field. He was the ultimate. Stand or, stand or move it! No, strong right. He carried himself the way a, a quarterback should carry himself. That's the way to go, oh! Cocky. That's the way to go, Blaze. A little bit arrogant, but I tell you what, he demanded respect and he got respect from the players. He had enough ability, he was a good enough quarterback to back up his mouth. Oh, what a Hey guys, you guys got a man up now here. Let's block this thing up and let's go. Let's get the show on the road right now. And no matter what happened to him, he would still stay on those guys. And he created the chemistry of that offense. Attack, attack, let's go, let's go, attack! Attack, attack, attack! The Bengals were running a no huddle offense. And it looked and sounded like pure chaos. I don't think ever in the history of the NFL had there ever been an offense remotely, even to this day, close to this. Fly Dallas Tom! Fly Dallas Tom! At the time, everyone was saying, hey, this won't work, it's crazy. Of course, everybody's doing it now, but um, at that time, it was getting a lot of criticism. And it was scoring more points than anyone else in 1988 because it created mismatches in coverage and forced defenses to do something they dread. You had to think. And the old saying goes, every time you think as a football player, you hurt the team. Instead of just lining up and reacting and playing, he made you think before you had to do something. What is he going to do? There's Eddie Brown. He has a touchdown. The magician, and perhaps the best play-action quarterback ever, were playing now you see it, now you don't, with defenses. Oh, did that fake out that secondary completely? Over the White. Football was a beautiful game, and to succeed at it, he needed a quarterback with a beautiful mind. This guy thinks ahead. He's always anticipating what's coming next. He's a star. Yeah, I wasn't going to call him that. If I don't call him that now, then people are going to think I'm stupid again. He would put a lot on my plate. He would expect a lot from me. Robert, take my plate. Change the plate. He would never let me wear a wristband on my arm to, to, to cheat. And really what they should give you, they should have a cheat sheet for you. They should, because this is not a normal offense. And he would always grill me mentally every day. What are you expecting if they bump each other? Bump, bump, what coverage? Like that guy to go back cover three. Shoot. 58 G release. All right. Tree. 647 bend in. I think I passed my oral exam today. He actually tried. Remember the, uh, the Dirty Dozen, the movie The Dirty Dozen? where they, they would go through it because they had all those dumb prisoners and they would try to attach a rhyme to what each guy was you know, supposed to do. Like one is the gun, the gun goes up the rope and this and that, two is the shoe. One gun, one gun. Two shoe, two shoe. Three is the tree, four is the door. Three tree, four door. And I said, Sam, I think maybe three of us understand what you're doing. The other 30 have no freaking clue. So whatever you do, you gotta dumb it down a little bit. It was just fascinating every time he would come up with something. And early in 1988, it was virtually unstoppable. In the Bengals' 6-0 start, 
the former bucking Bronco through 15 touchdown passes. Once he finally got me refined in the way he wanted me, we took Bill Walsh's 49er West Coast, very cerebral system to another level of thinking. And it was remarkable that we could all get together on the same page and pull it off. Off goes Dickey, left side, he is down, touchdown! Icky Woods! This touchdown by rookie Albert Icky Woods marked the birth of a legend and a dance craze. And Icky does a one-footed dance and spikes the ball. You remember the old Oldsmobile commercials, not like your dad's Oldsmobile? That kid, he's got all the moves. This is not your father's I learned it from you, Ma. When he came back, he started telling the story about this dance. Well, I think he'd been doing it a couple of times, but it hadn't caught on quite like it was about to catch on. It caught on because Woods kept scoring touchdowns. And after many, he performed his signature moves. At first, it was like, uh, oh, that's, that's such a silly dance. But you know, now that it's been hit and everybody likes to dance, everybody's like, oh, that's a great dance. I really like it. He really wasn't a very good dancer, if you know the truth. Hey, Nicky, I love you, baby, but, uh, nah. You didn't have to be a good dancer to do the Icky Shuffle. But not everyone could follow the simple steps. No, hell no, I can't dance. I can't dance at all. I never did it. I, I think I, I tried to sneak it once at home when nobody was watching just to see if I actually could do it. That, that comes part along with winning. And, and if you win enough, you deserve the right to do a little bit of that stuff. The NFL disagreed, and later in the season decided the shuffle wasn't suitable for the end zone. I told Icky before the game, I wanted him to go ahead and do it. That's crap. <laughs> That's a bonehead move by the National Football League, and they ought, to, they ought to change it. The officials told me that. The official that threw the flag came over and said, this is a crazy rule. I wish they'd take it out. It was the only thing we agreed on all day. <laughs> I can't to this day go to a speaking engagement somewhere that someone doesn't ask me, would you do the icky shuffle? Weich never did the dance, but he did keep giving the ball to Icky. During the second half of the season, the once pass-happy Bengals became a power running team with Woods and number 21 James Brooks combining for 29 touchdowns during the regular season. But perhaps the most surprising Bengal runner was Stanley Wilson. Twice he had been suspended for drug use, but in 1988, he was back. I thought he was clean when he returned. He acted like he was. He had the look of a guy that was. He was certainly fighting it. He actually had an author follow him around. He was gonna write a book about how he was gonna beat this addiction. If they call Stanley Wilson a dopehead and a coke addict again, I hope that y'all will throw the flag. That's taunting. He's a good football player. He's a good guy. You know, some guys are just bad actors and you're just not pulling for them. Then Stanley Wilson types, you're pulling for them. You want them to succeed. You did it. Great job. I used to have him over after home games and he would have a bowl of ice cream with me. The reason I brought him over there is that I was told by doctors that you're most susceptible to get back into drugs when you're celebrating or when you're depressed. Well, figure it out. Either win or lose, you're celebrating or depressed. By the end of the regular season, there wasn't much to be depressed about in Cincinnati. 
as Riverfront Stadium was transformed into the jungle. Hi everybody and welcome to the jungle, sometimes referred to as Riverfront Stadium. Welcome to the jungle, it was insane. If anybody ever wanted to do a study in fan behavior, all you had to do is take a look at the 87 Bengals and compare it to the 88 Bengals. Because the 87 Bengals were booed at home and I was like number, number one enemy. But in 88, all those Bengal fans that were embarrassed the year before all became one. The contrast in both years, same people involved, was remarkable. Just crazy stuff, you know, uh, appearances, things that you never dreamed of because we were never exposed to because we didn't win. We were winning, those things came alive. I didn't even know you could have a radio show as a player. I even got a radio show, imagine that. The Bengals even had their own theme song. Who they? Who they? Who they think gonna beat them Bengals? Who they think gonna beat them Bengals? Where they play in the jungle? I don't know where that came from. Yeah, that was Sam's goofy little thing. Okay, I wrote it. Nobody. I mean, it's, you know, who comes up with that? So the Bengals, 60 minutes away from what they hope the division title. They've got a second down and nine. Looking at him right here, Boomer, a play action off to his left. Siasen's late touchdown pass helped send the game to overtime, where White watched kicker Jim Breach attempt to win it. I can remember standing there, and I'm, I'm wearing the only thing on the sideline that's not NFL properties endorsed, a pair of leather gloves. But I can remember looking down at those gloves and thinking, what are you wearing these gloves for? There's a big game going on, I'm worried about the gloves. Well, the ball is put down, the kick is up. The Bengals are division champions. Yes, sir. The man with the finish everything mantra had finished the regular season 12 and 4. For the fourth year in a row, Tim Crumry had led the team in tackles. And Boomer Esiason was the NFL's MVP. Weirdest thing happened to me. I was driving into my neighborhood, must have been 50 houses, had little black and orange Boomer signs after I was named um, MVP. All these people, one year later, wanted to show support for me probably one of the proudest days of my entire life as a human being and as a football player because it really meant a lot to me. Minutes before his first playoff game as a head coach, Sam Weich was lost in his thoughts. But hours before that game, Weich spent Sunday morning the same way he often did, visiting a homeless shelter. I would sit there and I would listen to what they had to say and what their thoughts were and what their perspective on life was. And I just kind of put things in perspective before I had to go to that stadium and play a game that meant so much to so many. Sam used to say to us, listen, if you don't eat all your lunch, don't throw it out. You know, put it over here in this part of the room because I'm going to give it away to people who need it more than we do. And we saw that as like, this is a hell of a human being right here. Oh, I love you. White cared about people and about his players. A football head coach is supposed to be a guy that's going to be a grinder. It's going to make it uncomfortable for everybody and hold everybody accountable. All of us have a great love for each fraternal love right now. It ain't ever going to be broken. But for 1988, he was one of us. Uh, I'm inviting anybody that can find it, and I'm going to write the directions right up here to my house right now after this is over with. Got this big screen in the bedroom. Sam was a player's coach, but he let you have it. Shut up. 
Let me have it. We can throw the ball and we can run it. We cannot do the same thing. Don't be a selfish football player. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, when he got like Vince Lombardi-ish on us, we all didn't roll our eyes because we knew that wasn't his personality. But his communication skills were terrific. Sam always had a, had a knack of triggering me. Kick his ass. Now kick his ass. You know, Tim, you're, uh, you're kind of looking fat today. You know, I said, what do you mean I'm fat? I've been running six miles every other day. I'm not fat. He goes, ah, you might be fat and just walk away. He drives you nuts, but he made you think. And before each kickoff, he put one final thought in each of his players' minds. I did it to relax a little bit myself, selfishly, but I also did it to let the players know that one last time I'm on your side. Fulcher, your best game ever. And they'll be looking back in Oklahoma. Everybody in Oklahoma's watching, I think. Do they have TVs there? Yeah. Okay. You know, I can picture it in my mind, him walking up to me, me reaching up and shaking his hand. And, and we'll get him, coach. And he said, I know he will, Tim. We'll get him. Let's go, Timmy. Be nasty. Be nasty. We're going to kick him. Don't worry. I mean, it's simple. It's a handshake, an exchange of two or three words. But it's a memory you last for a lifetime. In the divisional playoff against Seattle, Stanley Wilson had a memorable game. He scored twice and was part of a ground attack that gained 254 yards rushing. I couldn't have been any happier for Stanley Wilson. Come on, come on, Stanley. Get it, Stanley. It was the crowning achievement of him overcoming all that he had had to overcome the previous two seasons. And he is back on the big stage, and he was doing exactly what he always wanted to do. Cincinnati's defense held Seattle to 22 yards rushing. But it was the Seahawks' defense most notably the often injured Ken Clark and Joe Nash, who became the story of this game. Well, you're telling him to get hurt. Look at this bullshit. You can't tell him to get hurt. He's all right. It was obvious what they were doing, but it was their way of trying to slow down the no huddle offense. And Joe Nash knew that he didn't have to play third down, so he would always get hurt after second down. I'm no doctor. I can't tell whether he's hurt or not. When he's down there... I'll, I'll give you a clue. If he's down on every third down, you can get your MD tonight. Well, at least they tried to do it on the field of play as opposed to some other teams who tried to do it in the commissioner's office and then steal the concept the next year and go on to four straight Super Bowls. That other team was Marv Levy's Buffalo Bills, the Bengals' opponent in the AFC Championship. Marv Levy said he would feign injuries like Seattle did and he would make a farce of the game. I wonder if their team feels ashamed of the way their coaches performed during the week. Marv and I laugh about that. Marv's a good friend of mine. Too. I've got on my website a newspaper clipping of Marv's headlines that the no huddle is no fair. This was you know, right after the 88 season, and then the next year, of course, they're running it. Actually, the next year is when they invented it. No huddle or not, the Bills were no match for the Bengals. Looks in the end zone, lobs it off in a flat, touchdown! Hand off to Icky, right side, touchdown! Icky Woods, the Bengals have won the AFC Championship. I was, like, delirious running off the field in the arms of my backup quarterback, Mike Norseth, realizing what we just accomplished and where we were headed to. As improbable a trip as any NFL team could have ever been on. I'm going to King's Island! You just kept repeating, I can't believe I'm going to the Super Bowl. You don't remember the bad games as the years go on. Those disappear. You hang on to that forever.
great. It's the cheesy 80s. What do you expect? And we're doing hip hip hooray cheers in the locker room. That's just the Bengals. When you're winning like that, everybody gravitates you know, toward the guy. Sam was the guy. He could have said, we're going to chant. The cow jumps over the moon. We were winning. Whatever he said, we're going to do. No cows jumping over the moon. Even more improbable. The magician had the Bengals in the Super Bowl. As the Cincinnati Bengals arrived for Super Bowl 23, America was told what the players learned at a team meeting the previous night. There's a major story breaking out of the Bengal camp, and it isn't good from Cincinnati's perspective. Stanley Wilson, who has twice before been suspended because of involvement with drugs, the Bengal running back suspended on the eve of the Super Bowl. We get into the meeting room, and I said, man, Stanley Wilson's, uh, you know, had another episode with the drugs, and he won't be playing tomorrow. I can remember guys taking their playbook and slamming them on the ground and they're dropping their head into their hands. And this is where the conflicting emotions really hit, I think, all of us. You know, Chris Collinsworth got up in front of the team and said, you know, we got to win this one for Stanley. And the other, the rest of the guys, I think they were going to kill uh, Chris for saying that because we were all mad at Stanley. Didn't mean enough to him to make the right choice. That was more important. And uh, I went up and did the hardest thing I ever did in coaching, ever. I sat on the edge of the bed at a Stanley Wilson who was in tears, and all he could say to me was, Sam, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Tears running down. He really looked like he'd been in a, a fight in a hose. He was just soaking wet with sweat. And I said, Stanley, you know, you're not going to play tomorrow. You may never play again. Stanley Wilson never did play another game in the NFL, but Sam Weich wouldn't have missed Super Bowl XXIII for the world. And the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, Sam White. I basically uh, was showing off. I mean, that's all it was. I wanted to be a part of that in every way I could. But this was our coach. I could think that every single one of us in that line going, what the hell is he doing? As opposed to, we're not going to win because Stanley Wilson's not here. The Bengals' chances of winning took another big hit early in the first quarter, when a routine play changed the course of the game and Tim Crumry's career. And Tim Crumry slow getting up. I knew it was pretty bad because Tim didn't get up. Come on, Timmy, get up, baby. I'm trying to get up, thinking to myself, here you dumbass, you broke your leg. Of all the players on defense that Cincinnati could not afford to lose, there it is, 69. Oh, baby, be all right. Maybe we can see what happens to him. 69, middle of your screen, working on Randy Cross. Crumry going across. Watch the leg. Oh, that is. Ooh, and look at the foot. Ah. Ooh. I don't think we want to see that one again. Hey, it looks bad, man. Nobody hit it, nobody cut it. The turf didn't fly out. I, I just think it was an adrenaline thing that uh, I was excited to be in the deal and it's a self-inflicted injury. It was nobody's fault, it was my own fault. I got too damn excited. I was just too much into the game and I probably wanted it too much. Hang tough, Tim. We're gonna win it, we're gonna win it. Just hang tough. I didn't want to get on a stretcher. 
That was like embarrassing to me to be on a stretcher. That hurt. You worked so hard to get here. This is the, the supreme moment, and now it's lost for him. They said, well, we have to take you to the hospital. I said, I'm not going to the hospital. I'm staying. So they said, we're going to have to cast it. I said, well, go ahead and cast it. They said, well, we're going to have to give you some painkillers. I said, if I take the painkillers, can I remember? They said, uh, it'll be foggy. I said, I don't want any. I said, set the leg. I said, give me a bullet. The policeman here. I said, give me your bullet like the old cowboys do. Didn't have it. Wouldn't give me the damn bullet. So I said, give me a towel then. So I bit in a towel. Bit in a towel and they set the leg. Carl's got a segmental fracture of the tibia. I got him in a cast. You might want to admit What's the tibia? The weight, weight bearing or the yeah, weight bearing? Yeah, he's with both bones. He's out for six months. Crumrai would have been proud of his defensive teammate's performance. At halftime, score was three to three. I come into the locker room, and Tim Crumrai is still in the locker room on the gurney. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing here? I want to see the guys at halftime. You know, Boomer and everything. We'll get the ring for you. We'll get the ring for you, Tim. He was a significant part of the team, and he wanted to be in the same building that we were. To me, that was like, I couldn't believe it. Tim, we're going to get it for you. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I still remember those words. Watched it through the third quarter in the locker room, and then they had to get me out of there. They didn't want me hung up in a ton of traffic at the end of the game. Crumry stayed just long enough to see the Bengals' only touchdown of Super Bowl XXIII. Come on, Stanford! Run it all the way back! Let's go! It was just, it was magical. It was fantastic. This is my roommate. This is my roommate. We spent a lot of time together. And you got to remember his daughter, who was just born previous to the Super Bowl, Kelsey. Who's that for? Kelsey or somebody? When Stanford did that, everything was happening. It just felt like, okay, it's going to happen for us. This year is actually going to end on a high note. Oh, yeah, chance. We got a chance. Oh, yeah. I'm still going to get my ring. I'm going to get that sucker. Late in the fourth quarter, a Jim Breach field goal set the stage for one of the most dramatic finishes in Super Bowl history. And with 3.20 left to go, the Bengals take a 16 to 13 lead. As Chris Collinsworth remind me, when they took over the ball on the nine yard line, we probably left too much time for number 16. Number 16 was the focus, but on some Bengals' minds and helmets was number 69. Play like you're world champions, now let's do it! Better than you ever played, let's go! All you've got on defense, let's go! Like he had done so many times when he was his coach, Sam White watched Joe Montana march down the field. This is deja vu. What's going through my head? I was the uh, representative to go to Disney World if we're going to go to Disney World if we win, okay? And at that time, I get uh, a group of people that get around me 
uh, including the agency, the client, the sound person, the camera person, they even brought a makeup person for crying out loud. Getting ready to shoot this commercial, I'm going to Disney World. And with every pass that Joe Montana is completing, going, I'm going to Disney World, man, I'm going to Disney World. I got these people around me wanting to know if I know my lines. It's a very surreal situation for me. 39 seconds remain to be played in this game. Montana's going to go back and throw. Into the end zone, oh. touchdown to Taylor. You know, your body goes cold. It really does. I mean, I could feel the chill just run like the the, the uh, police keep pumping. <laughs> you know, you're not pushing any oxygen up. The uh, emotions are all so compacted that you have no emotion. You just are numb. And I'm saying, I guess I'm not going to Disney World. You know, they're running across the field looking for Joe Montana. And you talk about adding insult to injury. I saw the part of the fourth quarter of the hospital bed. I felt bad for the guys because I couldn't do my part to help the guys. In a way, you know, I let them down. I didn't, I didn't do my part. I wasn't able, so I got hurt, but I still didn't do my part. And would have made a difference? I don't know, but I sure the hell like to try. When he went off, uh, I told him we were gonna get him the ring. <laughs> you know, I hope he doesn't make me buy him one now. <laughs> I have never looked in its entirety. I've never looked at that ball game. I just found it too painful. To this day, I haven't seen it. I've never watched the whole game, never seen it on TV replay, and don't care to at any point in time in my life. But you know what? I always think back to the great memories that our team had, and the way that we did it. It was really unique in nature. We had a unique coach. We had great personalities on our team. And where we came from to where we ascended to is the most unpredictable of seasons that any team has ever had in the history of the league. You tell me, I'm a rookie. Your sixth year you're gonna play, you're gonna go to the Super Bowl, you're gonna go to the Pro Bowl. From Wisconsin, nose tackle, number 69, Pro Bowler Tim Cromroy. Right after it's done, I'm gonna bust your leg. Would you take that? I would. Because that's what the game is worth. I'd do it. Or you could say, you're never going to get the experience those. You choose. I'll take rehab any day. Tim Crumrye broke both bones in his leg on January 22, 1989. He'd never missed a football game from the time he was in seventh grade. And he wasn't about to start now. Doctors didn't believe. There's no way in hell he's going to do this. Coaches didn't believe. They wrote me off. I kind of got the 10th round draft choice attitude. I'm going to do this. I don't care. I'm going to do it. How's the leg? It's going along pretty good. That's good, man. It feels pretty good. I don't I got a 15 inch ride down there yet. I can't believe you played <laughs> You're going through the rehab, going through the the aches and pains of that, and, and coming back and playing years after that, and the memories that I got, uh, that Super Bowl year, uh, hell, I, 
Break my other leg and put me back in the Super Bowl, I'd go today. Even if I was a coach. You can break it, I'll go as a coach, okay? Those memories are that important to me. And that's that's what it's all about. That's, that's who you are. That's your identity as an individual. Today, Crumrise identity is as the Kansas City Chiefs defensive line coach. Let's go, let's go. You want to mess around? I'll mess around with your ass. Let's go. 20 years later, he's still searching for a missing ring trying to replace an AFC championship ring with one from the Super Bowl. I live part of the dream. I'm still short one part, that's all. I'll get there someday. I'm, that's why I coach. I do it to finish it inside the ring. Did Sam tell you what inside the ring says? Finish everything, guys. Finish everything is what's inside that ring. Finish everything was the reason for that season. Finish everything. And you know what? We didn't finish everything. I don't wear this ring very often. The players call this the loser's ring, by the way, and I doubt many of them wear it. I don't wear it because a ring is meant, I think, to signify first place. If you don't stay in it, you're finished. You're done. I'm still in it. I'm still going for it. I'm still trying to get it. And I'm still living those days as a player. Why do we play the game? It's to win the Super Bowl. I was lucky. I was lucky. I was close to getting it, and maybe someday it'll happen.